You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. This reading that we just had was given about 2,600 years ago. 26 centuries ago, and it was written down. About 2,000 years ago, or 20 centuries ago, because of the times in which they were living, some of the Jews decided to hide some of these scrolls in jars and put them in a cave. They stayed in that cave for 2,000 years, relatively speaking, 100 years one way or the other. And then they were found. When they were found, we didn't get to know much about it because most of the people hadn't, you know, the qualified people hadn't really assessed what they were, whether they were fake, whether they were real, uh, what languages they were written in. They, They didn't know what to make of them. And it was a long time for we found out. I remember my grandmother and grandfather speaking about these things uh, quite a few years afterwards, but, but we're quite unaware of the significance of what actually they had found. I know that we have talked about it from time to time, but I'm wondering if we really see the miracle involved. And that's why I'm very happy that a lot of young people are here because this is the kind of thing that makes faith. This gives us the will to spend our time studying the scriptures so that we can then be filled with uh, the ideas that we can take out to people and we can, we can show that we really believe these things because of what God has provided for us. Now I want you to remember what you're looking at on the screen at the present time. Because that's a slide that will appear again, and the circumstances of that were an indication to a cave in 2021. Now these other scrolls were found in 1947, 1957. So it's uh, been a long time since they found new things. And to find them, they had to ravel down the cliffside to get into this cave. Into the cave, they found that looters had already been there and had taken away anything of value. But because there were a lot of skeletons in the, in the cave, they thought that they might just sift through the dirt on the floor of the cave to see what they could find. And yes, they did find something, and I want to uh, bring that to your attention when we get there. Now, it would be worth to pay attention to what is really on display. Um, Dorothy and I went to Jerusalem. We went to this shrine of the book. And I must say, I wasn't really impressed. Because the Jews themselves had failed to see the significance of what what they had uncovered, what was there in the dirt. And what they made of it was... I wonder who the people are that that buried them. I wonder what civilization was like. I wonder what these scrolls that we're talking about, the times in which they lived, really said. 
As far as the Bible, there was very little there. You see, God's given it to us, to you and I, to proclaim what we can see there that a lot of the world just doesn't know. They're looking at it, and they don't perceive what God has been trying to tell them. So you can see on your left there, that's the main Isaiah scroll that was found complete. And that's a replica of it that's spread around. So you can come in, you can look at, the, at this uh, scroll, and you can see uh, what it looked like. And we'll show you a little bit more of that as we proceed through this. I want you to try to comprehend this. This is the appearance of the Dead Ski Caves that is probably the most appealing. Some of them weren't very really attractive at all, but this is the one that is sort of famous. We see this on more uh, write-ups about uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls than any other one. But there were 12 caves. This is just one of them. There were 19,000 fragments little bits and pieces of scrolls, as well as those Isaiah, complete scrolls. Of the scrolls, there was 800, 200 of which were biblical. So that's just a quarter of the, of the scrolls that were found that were biblical. Maybe that's one of the reasons why people put so much time into trying to understand the civilization that then lived and, and sort of, to an extent, forgot about the biblical scrolls. They were written on four materials, the skin of animals, papyrus, copper, and lead. They were written in ancient Hebrew, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So you can see the, the complexity that people would, be, uh, would have to know those old languages, like ancient Hebrew, to be able to really understand what it had to say. The main group of scrolls were discovered in uh, 1947. There were a number of others that were found not in this particular area of the Dead Sea, but south of it at Masada in 1957. And then there was this scroll that was, well, it wasn't really a scroll. It was a piece of a scroll that they could identify as part of a book of a Bible in 2021. There they are, dated as between 1900 and 2200 years old. Now people aren't gonna dispute that age because those who are not Bible scholars were the ones that uh, actually studied these to try to figure out for sure when they were put there and what they were talking about. That's what they had to tell us. Now it is a beautiful place to go to because there's a rose garden quite near the Knesset building. That's the government building in Jerusalem. And from there you can see in the middle there just the top of what looks like a jar. And that is shrine of the book where they honor the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now Israel is a land of caves. And if you go through the mountainous parts of Judea and back into the Negev, you will find all kinds of caves. But uh, looters have been there because they see that these scrolls are of value and, and quite a lot of value, so they're there for the sake of the money. Missing the whole thing that we'll be talking about today. Now even in 100 BCE, hiding scrolls in jars was not a new idea. Like when they put these scrolls in jars, it wasn't something one just came up with at the last minute because the Romans were coming. 
No, if you look at Jeremiah 32, verses 13 and 14, it says, I charge Barak before them, saying, Thus saith Yahweh host, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. Maybe they got the idea from the scriptures themselves that they could be kept for many days by putting them in a jar and putting them away, even though when we'll get through to see this particular slide, they were exposed. They weren't really hidden at all. Now, if you want to read more about this, there's two books you need. So I want to make sure that you understand that you can rely on this information. These weren't written by Christadelphians. This was written by the man, Yagalyadin, who was in charge of going through all of these caves on behalf of Israel to find these kinds of manuscripts. So both of them I am cited some things from in order to uh, prepare this talk. Now, some of the scrolls didn't look very good, but they at least looked like they'd been around for a long time in somewhere where the corruption could happen and they could be eroded or they could be eaten or there could be some kind of fungus on them. So, but there was enough, you see, they could identify it by the writing as to what it was and what it was relating to. But the real champion of the scrolls was this Isaiah M1 scroll. Now there's a little look at it, the right of your screen there. And that's what it looked like. You can see where it's, it's been sewed together. Well, the sewing together w wasn't so much repairing it as it was made of animal skins. And since this was 17 meters long, it would be at least as long as this hall is wide, all rolled up in a scroll. So it was pieces of skin, which may have only been that much, sewed together, and that was the way the, the uh, scroll was sewed and prepared for writing. I want to read what it says in the book, The Message of Rolls. It says, the scroll, that's Isaiah, consists of 54 pages or columns containing the full 66 chapters of Isaiah, that is, both books of Isaiah, as they are sometimes called. The scroll itself is made of 17 leather sheets sewn to each other with lint thread. The length of the sheets is unequal. The longest is 62.8 centimeters and the shortest 25.2 centimeters. The numbers of columns on each sheet also varies. Some have four columns, some three, and two sheets have only two columns. The complete length of the scroll is 7.34 meters. The information is right on your desktop. You can go home and you can, you can see this. It's published, it's there, we can use it and cite it, we can take it to people and try to illustrate this part of what I think is God's mercy for our generation. Now these scrolls were found, at least the ones we're gonna talk about, in two locations. One was Qumran, which is the northern one up at the top of the Dead Sea area, and not on the shore, but just back a little bit. And the other is at Masada at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And I suppose all along that shoreline where you have that kind of rocky formation, there would be caves and they would be used for that or for hiding in. Now the Dead Sea shoreline is, is really quite interesting. It's uh, not called the Dead Sea for nothing. The salt content is so high, you, that's what it looks like on the shoreline. 
where you've got these rocks covered with crustaceans of salt that's uh, uh, formed there by the you know, water splashing up on it and um, then the water evaporating. <clears throat> that's not something I don't think that anybody has a hot tub compared to this one, but uh, when it's uh, warm enough, it, it, yeah, you could lay out on the Dead Sea, you're not gonna sink. I've done it myself, laid out there and there's no problem with just, you, you just float around like you were a boat. You just float low in the water. And you don't want to tip over because if you go on your stomach, your head's going to go in and you'll be very sorry if you get that in your mouth or in your eyes. Now, this is what the shoreline looked at the northwest end. This is where we have a look at some of the scrolls found. So you can see that little road that snakes around the side of the Dead Sea at the very bottom. So it's really rugged country, but beautiful in its own right by what you can see and how it's, it's been eroded away by large amounts of water that have occasionally come down into the Dead Sea. In fact, when we were there, uh, I was quite surprised to see that the road at the bottom actually had been washed out by a rainstorm that came on the top, and the top apparently is not very absorbent of water, so water runs off it down in those wadis, comes down rushing into the Dead Sea, Everything in the way is just washed into it, but that hasn't happened for a long time. The Dead Sea is, is drying up. Now, here's something if you ever went to Israel, you'd want to visit because this is where they really show you a story of the Dead Sea Scrolls from start to finish. And there's a kiosk there. You can see a museum there. You can see in the foreground uh, right there, there's the old civilization. There's the observation points. When you look at those caves we were just looking at, those are the caves we're just looking from the cross. So that's the area of the Dead Scrolls. And the road that you see going up here goes up to Jerusalem. And uh, so it's, it's quite close to the city of Jerusalem. That would be something you'd certainly want to see. So Cave 4... Out of the 19,000 fragments, there were 15,000 found in that cave. And what people who were commenting on this part, time of the civiliz civilization believed was that it was a sort of a library there where there was shelving, there was actually holes in the rocks for, for boards to go across. They figured they were full of scrolls or jars with scrolls in them. And when the Romans came, they just came and slashed and smashed everything so that yeah, there's 15,000 fragments. There has to be a reason why things that are put in jars or that are scrolls are all upped up. It was Roman swords, they believe, that did that. So this was going to be quite a problem for people that had to deal with that kind of a cave. Now, Brother Paul, Tin, Brother Tim Billington and I were down there having a look at these caves. And at the time we first looked at this, I really was a bit skeptical about the story because it mentioned that the way they found the scrolls, the ones that made the sensation, was uh, a shepherd boy looking for a lost goat. And he was coming down here to find this goat, and he looked at it, he saw a hole in the rock, he threw a stone in there, and he heard something smash, which was not what he expected to hear. They came back the next day with others, into the cave, and that's where they found the scrolls. Now, you just think of this. Those scrolls had been laying there in that 
that cave for 2,000 years open. So anybody threw a stone in there, it would be smashed. But it wasn't smashed. They were in this jar so that you could find the whole scroll of Isaiah. Everybody seems to be quite content. That scroll could have been read by Jesus. That's how old it was. Put in that jar and discovered in 1947. Can't you think of how privileged we are? You see, they were puzzled for a long time about how reliable the scriptures really are. They had no photocopiers. They had no phones to take a picture of this and that. What they had was scribes who had, this is the copy that you're working on, now you make another one. And you can just imagine the problem writing that out so accurately that there wouldn't be any errors. And quite accurate, as we'll find out. But we wanted to see, in a place where there was so little of anything for anything to eat, this story of the goats didn't sound too good for us. So we looked around, and, and uh, yes, we found there was all kinds of uh, little prints in that, but just up the Dead Sea, a little effect southward from where we were at En Gedi, here are the ibexes. They're all over the place. And they can walk up those hillsides. And if they went to En Gedi, En Gedi's where a spring is. Lots of vegetation there. So yeah, there were goats. And it's not unreasonable then to think that the story that it comes with the Dead Sea Scroll discovery is that someone actually was looking for goats. And you know, you, you, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to be misled by this. So you need to go over these tales and say, is this plausible? And I feel quite convinced that we have something that can be believed. Now you can see that cave doesn't look nearly as attractive as the other ones, but that's where the sensational discovery was made. Somewhere in there, they, I haven't got a better picture of this, but somewhere there there's an opening and somewhere there must have been a place where a, someone could throw a stone in and break one of those uh, pottery jars. I want you to think of this. What they found was seven scrolls. They found a complete copy of Isaiah. In fact, they found two copies, one a little better in condition than the other. But then they found these other five which weren't really biblical. I mean, it's a commentary, they have a commentary, Thanksgiving scroll, manual of discipline, war rule, Genesis Apocryphon. They were all the writings of people who were in existence at the time they hid these, these uh, scrolls. So for our interest, they're in yellow. But for the world's interest, basically, they are three to seven. That's why we got to wake up about this. Like, God's going to account us a little more responsible than maybe any other generation for not speaking up on what we have found here because people just are asleep. They don't realize this. There will be nothing that really be, will be of advantage to them to know all they can about scrolls three to seven. But those scrolls, or that one scroll, the book of Isaiah, would be one of the most wonderful books that you could ever find to tell you about the gospel message, about the work of Jesus Christ, about the coming kingdom, about God's way of working with people. I mean, it's there in Isaiah. God preserved Isaiah. And the more that we can make out of that scroll, the more we can, I think, support our case when we go out to the world.
Now this is where it starts to get sensational. This is where we start to see the hand of God in this. Because I don't realize or don't remember at least that anybody that I could, I could recall spoke about this when I was in my youth. Like I was, I was living, I wasn't very old at that time, but I don't remember my mom or my dad or my parents really being excited about this because I don't think they really realized what had been discovered. But think of this. This is Jerusalem in 1947. This is when the Jews first found out about these scrolls. They were found by these Bedouins, I suppose, who when they saw these scrolls wrapped up and looked like they'd been taken pretty good care of, took them out, put them under their arms and ran off to an antiquities dealer. How much do you want to pay me for these scrolls I found? Their idea was money. The antiquity dealer says, well, just hold on a bit. There's been a lot of fake stuff going on. We need to know whether this is right or not. Um, you give them to me and I'm gonna find out whether they're fake. So how did they find out? Well, they contacted a Jewish professor. Now the Jewish professor was one side of this barbed wire and the antiquities dealer was on the other side of the barbed wire. That's Jerusalem in 1947. To be able to get the scroll, the, the uh, professor, the Jewish professor had to convince the uh, antiquities dealer who was Arab to let him have those scrolls so he could go back and, and uh, decide whether or not he would buy them. Now, when the, and that actually was arranged. Like, this is at a, a very tricky time in history for the Jews and the Arabs to be doing anything together. But that was passed to the Jewish professor. He took it back home and he had a weekend to decide it, but he couldn't contact anybody else, apparently at that time, except to use his own judgment on this. And he wasn't going to buy all the scrolls. I think there was only four of them. Uh, and one of them, one Isaiah scroll and, and, a, and three others that he took. In. And this, this man thought, you know, this could be fake. But he says in the write-up, he says, I, I just felt there was something about this too good uh, for me to miss up. So he says, I went down and I talked to a man who allowed me to mortgage my house. And I took that money and I gave it to the antiquities dealer, which would be a couple thousand dollars or so. And he, he bought the scrolls. And then he went back and then he found out that these things were genuine. They were worth a lot more than a couple thousand dollars as they were gonna find out when they tried to buy the others. But at the same time, the same night, right across the Atlantic Ocean in New York City in the United Nations, they were trying to decide whether Israel would be allowed to have a partition part of the land. That's how the nation of Israel got started. That night, when the professor was trying to figure out what these scrolls were of value, in the United Nations, they were trying to find out what the land was in value. And so Israel got the land that night, and they also got the scrolls. That is the hand of God from my point of view. It's only God could do that. They'd been in there for 2,000 years, and this is the night? The very night the United Nations deals with this issue? People aren't able to do that. Even if they wanted to, they wouldn't be able to do that. God could do that. 
We need to be convinced of that. We don't go out and talk to people easily, but when we got this kind of conviction because we believe this, that conviction turns into power. Look at their faces. Tel Aviv the next day. The Jews were so happy, the partition approved by more than two-thirds. You don't see that about the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were wonderfully happy about getting their land and have been rejoicing ever since. But the same joy about the Dead Sea Scrolls has been limited to building the shrine of the book in Jerusalem. But just look at what the man who decided to go through these scrolls and read them for himself. Now, this was not the professor. This was the professor's son, Yigal Yadin, who was a very important official in Jerusalem at the time. He was a commander of the Jewish army. He was a person that was uh, well-recognized, and he resigned from all those offices and said, I want to be an archaeologist. I want to go out and see what I can find in the caves. What drove that man to do that? What would drive you to go out and up all you're doing to go out into the caves where you find dead bodies and skeletons and, and dirt? See if you can find bits and pieces of scripture. Well, this is what this man had to say. This is his words written in that book. I cannot avoid the feeling that there is something symbolic in the discovery of the scrolls in their acquisition at the moment of the creation of the state of Israel. It is as if these manuscripts had been waiting in caves for 2,000 years, ever since the destruction of Israel's independence, until the people of Israel had returned to their home and regained their freedom. This symbolism is heightened by the fact that the first three scrolls were bought by my father for Israel on the 29th of November 1947, the very day on which the United Nations voted for the recreation of the Jewish state in Israel after 2,000 years. But he stopped there. It was in his mind. He had recognized there's, that's uncanny that those things should happen at the same time. But there wasn't anybody to follow it up. And even that was only discovered, I found, in his book. And who would even know about his book unless somehow you were looking for the Dead Sea Scrolls and information and you would stumble on it. But having stumbled on it, I find that sensational. You just think of this. This is the way God works because in Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41, it says, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self same day, it came to pass that all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. Who could do that but God? What do we call a miracle? But something that only God could do. That's why we were addressing it in that sense. On the self same day, it happened. God had given the command, it happened. God gave the command about the Jews coming back, it happened. And I think that God had allowed us to have a look at those scrolls for a particular reason. Let's keep going. A scroll of Isaiah was placed in a jar in this cave sometime while the land of Israel was being destroyed by the Roman armies. About 2,000 years passed without the scroll being discovered or disturbed. Not even storms, not even wild animals. 
Neither did the, the fungus or you know, various other ways of destroying those scrolls happen. Then, well, one of the main prophecies in the scroll was being fulfilled that was rediscovered in 1947 for the glory of Yahweh. That's what I think we should conclude from that. So when you look at Jerusalem, and just to note where you are, there's the Knesset building. That's the government of Jerusalem. There's the Rose Garden where we saw that picture. And here is a, just a beautiful park. Going over here, here is the museum, a wonderful place to go through for all that Israel has put on there. Many, many parts of archeology span or artifacts that uh, are the result of archeology. span And there's, sorry, just go back one here. There's the shrine of the uh, just here in the foreground. So it's right in the museum complex. This is the monument built, the Shrine of the Book. It was obviously uh, a very generous donation by someone. And what I thought was really quite interesting about this place was that's all there was to the artwork. None of you are aspiring artists and you were given the job of trying to illustrate when people come up to this place where the Dead Sea Scrolls, what, what would you do? All they did, they put a black wall and they put something that looked like a, the top of a jar behind it in white. So depending on where you are, you can't see it at all because there's a black wall in front of you. But you walk out here, there it is. And that's just the way it was in discovering those scrolls. It was right there. But God had preserved it for 2,000 years without it being destroyed. Again, the hand of God. Now, how old were these scrolls and how do we know? Like, how can you be sure they've been in there that long? Well, this is what, again, Yagaliadin, who was quite uh, a, a scholar himself in Hebrew, he says, thus we know that even from this second source of Septuagint, which ha have not full texts of the Bible earlier than the fourth century AD, and of that fact, it is easy to appreciate the importance of the two Isaiah's texts discovered among the Qumran scrolls. These texts are about a thousand years older than the oldest Hebrew texts known to us and about 500 years older than the earliest Greek version of the Septuagint. Now for all those skeptics that said, you can't tell me that, that they are that old and uh, you know, that, that's gonna be covered in a minute. But they went on to say, if they are that old, and they had to be copied. You can't expect that the last copy they might have now would ever be anything like what it was just a thousand years. Well, they found these texts a thousand years older than anything we have now. What did he say about them? What is astonishing is despite their antiquity and the fact that the scrolls belong to this pre-standardization period, they are on the whole almost identical with the Masoretic text known to us. This establishes a basic principle for all future research on the text of the Bible. Not even the hundreds of variations established in the text affecting mainly spelling and the occasional word substitution can alter that fact. So there were a few things that were different, but they were essentially identical with what we have today. 
Now, how does that make you feel about the reliability of yours? God preserved it. He preserved evidence for our generation to know that we could rely on scriptures to that extent. That's what I think is the sensational part of it. Now, this is what they found 2020, uh, 21 rather. In this article in Associated Press, March 16th, 2021, it says, the Romans discovered and besieged refugees in the horror cave until they starved to death there. The first archeologists to arrive at the la in the last century found skulls and bones placed in baskets in the cavern. The new fragments contain verses from Zechariah chapter eight, verses 16 and 17, including part of the name of God written in ancient Hebrew and verses from Nahum 1, verses five to six, both the biblical book of the 12 minor prophets. Now, what is interesting about it is when he said, including part of the name of God written in ancient Hebrew, these texts were all in Greek. That those early Greek texts had actually, in some cases, the ancient Hebrew transliterated when it came to God's name. Now that is a, something to be contended with because here you have this uh, provided, just a little, little scrap found by sieving through the dust on the bottom of the cave, they were able to come up with that and, and report it. Just uh, kind of interesting. Well, let's just dig a little bit on the scholarly opinion. It says, today the scholarly opinion regarding the time span and background of the Dead Sea Scrolls is anchored in historical, paleographic, lingu linguistic evidence, corroborated firmly carbon-14 datings, some manuscripts were written and copied in the third century BCE, but the bulk of material, particularly the texts that reflect on a sectarian community, are originals or copies from the first century BCE. That's the people that would normally oppose what we would say from them. They're saying that's how old they are. Now, I didn't cite any authority there because I got that from the kiosk that we looked at in Qumran. Uh, and that's uh, where you'd have to go to actually go back to, to see where they got that from. Now this is quite interesting because if they had found these scrolls a hundred years earlier, or maybe even uh, a little later, but without these technologies, they wouldn't be able to read them. They had to have infrared technology permitted the reading and copying of the scrolls because they got these copies or they got these pieces of, of uh, skin they couldn't see anything on it. But you put an infrared light on it and suddenly you see writing. Until they developed the technology to be able to do that and read it, that would have been ignored and just thrown out just a piece of empty scroll. No, it wasn't empty. They had to have the ability to analyze the DNA of each of those scraps. You see, they were made on animal skins Every animal would have a different DNA. So if you give me a bucket of scraps and doing the DNA analysis on each of those scraps, I might be able at the end of it to say, well, these were the animals involved and put them in piles. If they were the animals involved, then that's what you should look at when you're trying to identify a particular script. So you would then try to put that together. Very interesting, but not available until that DNA analysis 
technology was developed. And then carbon-14 dating provided proof of the age of the scrolls. So again, even from the point of view of the secular person who doesn't have any biblical interest in it, not contending for those things because they're proven. Now I want you to go down to Masada. We'll just wind this up with the Masada because when we go down here, this is a different place altogether. Like this is uh, not a, a cave where something's been stuffed in it or in a jar or something. This is majestic. And if you ever go to Israel, you want to take a day at least to go down to Masada. It looks pretty impressive. There's the Dead Sea in the background. And in the foreground here, you can't really see, but there's a road that comes along here. You have to travel that road to get to it. So Jerusalem road comes along here. And then there's a, a road that comes off that and comes into where this is the, uh, the center. And there is a, uh, a lift chair. Actually, it's not a lift chair. It's a cable car that comes here and takes you up here unless you're young, like a lot of you are, who could get. But most of the people are older and uh, they would uh, take the cable car. Now, what a story. And no one's been down there. They had no interest in this place. So there's the siege ramp that the Romans made to take out this group of Jews who were still there fighting the Romans after the city of Jerusalem fell. And they knew they had to get rid of these people. They called them the zealots because they were so lively that if the Romans went back to Rome, these people would be out. They would be again stirring up the people and they'd have to come back to do, deal with them again. So they had to make this ramp all the way up to the edge Herod, who built this place, had put a wall all around the edge and it had to be battered down. He did a pretty good job on it. Like you would think, oh, what a rough place that would be to live. No, not for Herod. He's the king. He's, he wants a palace. So it was all plastered, done in this beautiful tile. As you can see, they just re replaced some of it. Otherwise, you can see uh, behind it just the rough stone, that little black line that snakes there illustrates the, the level to which they found the wall when they first went there. Everything above that's been put in place to illustrate what it may have looked like originally. That's looking over the Dead Sea area from the top of Masada, pretty majestic. That's looking at from the wall of where the zealots were trying to fend off the Romans. And you can see out here, this here, would be a Roman encampment, a wall all around it. The Romans stayed in there at night. So the sentries would walk around the wall to make sure there were no infiltrators. And there were several of them around this particular place. They built one down near where you come in and uh, start going towards the cable car just to show you what it would look like up close. And uh, it's called the reconstructed siege camp, Asada, and there you have it. That's what it probably looked like when it was operational. People would be in there, soldiers being in there, sleeping at night. Now this is what the Jews make of that place today. Young people, if you were Jews, if you were conscripted to go into the military, you would be taken here because this is where you have to say your allegiance to the state of Israel. And look at what it says. This is all, it's all documented here as to where you can get it from out of Yigal Yadin's work. 
It is thanks to Ben and his comrades, to their heroic stand, to their choice of death over slavery, and to the burning of their humble chattels as a final act of defiance to the enemy. They elevated Masada to an undying symbol of desperate courage, a symbol which stirred hearts throughout the last 19 centuries. It is indeed which moved scholars and laymen to make the ascent to Masada. It is this which moved the modern Hebrew poet to cry, Masada shall never fall again. It is which has drawn the Jewish youth of our generation and their thousands to climb up to its summit in a solemn pilgrimage. And it is this which brings the recruits to the armored units of the defense forces of modern Israel to swear the oath of allegiance on Masada's heights. Masada shall not fall again. That's what they make of it. And they have really made it a track place to visit and how they have restored it. That's not our interest. That was just to make sure you all don't fall asleep on me. And now we've got to get back to what did we find there? Well, Herod had made this a palace. And when Herod left it and the zealots took it over, it was a zealotless. So there were three levels to this. And there's a beautiful wind that comes up over those places. So he would always be in a breeze from, from the, the natural direction of the wind in that location. But there was a synagogue there. And Yagel, Yard, uh, Yagen rather, was wise enough to know that if you were looking scrolls, because of the Jewish heritage, you would probably find them in a synagogue. So they located it because they knew there was a, a building on the wall that faced Jerusalem, and every synagogue had to face Jerusalem. So he had a few clues to go by. So he found this place, and they did discover that it was a synagogue. But what they were looking for was a Geniza. Now, a Geniza is a grave. It's not a grave for people. It's a grave for old Bibles, or in their language, for scrolls. What do you do when you have a Bible that you don't use any further? You throw it out? Do you burn it? Or is it somewhere in the house still? Well, most of us, it's there somewhere. You can go back and find all our old Bibles there somewhere. The Jews felt so sentimental and that the, the, the book that, or the scroll they'd been using was so holy, they were not going to burn it. They would bury it. In other words, that's what we do with people out of dignity for humans, we bury them when they die. We don't leave them to rot outside. That's the dignity that they showed to old scrolls. But they couldn't find them. Well, Egalian, for some reason, decided, I want they're under the floor. So they dug up the floor. And when they dug up the floor, they were looking around for any evidence that there is scrolls buried somewhere. And sure enough, they did find a couple places where it looked like something had been disturbed. Now, at this point, they recognized you're not likely going to find jars. If jars were in there, they wouldn't be stored like you'll probably find maybe a little something of the scroll. That scroll that they found had been in there for 2,000 years in the ground, not in a jar preserved that way. And what they found was located by, I guess, taking a pick and just going down and down and down. How long did they, or they could do it before they decide that there isn't anything? Well, they, they kept going until they did find something. Who knows why? That's what they found. 
Can you see in that picture any resemblance to an old uh, scroll or a, something that has letters on it? Like, there is some lettering. There's some letters. There's some letters. But you can almost see right through it. It's so thin. They were able to take what they found there and find out that it was from the prophet Ezekiel. And further, that they found that it was from the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. Now, there's about 1,100 pages in our Bible, the Old Testament, if you have a King James with you, but 1,100 pages. What would be the chance, <laughs> if you want to look at it this way, of this particular page being buried and lasting so you could read it after 2,000 years in the ground? I, I don't think that would, uh, you could come up with any odds in that. But when you see what it says, this is what it says in that passage which we read together. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we're cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. But this was a grave. They were digging in a grave, a gazaya. Um, in order to try to prove that there was a, a scroll there or find the scroll there. And when we found it, it talked about graves, people in graves. That's hardly a coincidence either. And just summary, I just think, first of all, the prophecy of Ezekiel required that the nation of Israel be scattered throughout the world in graves. That's what we read in the chapter. Before some of them died in the, in the destruction, they buried us of Ezekiel in the Geniza at Masada. But the prophecy so buried said that a distant generation would be raised out of their graves from afar and returned to their ancient homeland. After 2,000 years of exile, some of these people who did return were in Israel looking for evidence of their forefathers' existence and found a little piece of the scroll that had not completely corrupted that they could still read. That little piece of scripture just happened to be from the part of Ezekiel's prophecy that spoke of their dead bodies coming back to live again in their ancient homeland. Now I say that's glory to our God. And that's something we don't want to miss you know, the prophets often speak, even Jesus speaks of it, you know, something just going through our fingers. We're not, we're not trying to hold on to it. It's like if we're having something like a lot of seeds in our hand and we hold our fingers like that, it just falls out. That's the way we do the readings sometimes. We do our readings and, yeah, we, we acknowledge that there's good things in there, but we don't grab it. By the time the reading, we've forgotten it. We never record it. We never do anything about it. We can't live like that, young people and brothers and sisters. We've got to be able to take these things that God provides and make the most of it. That's the end of our presentation. And I hope that it'll have the same effect on you as it had on me. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.